0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Welcome this morning, guys. Um, So Pastor Tom was in the Marines, uh, the few, the proud, the Marines, uh, if you want to, like, and so if you have just sort of that sense of pride of being a Marine, if you, I think you guys can have that sense of pride this morning. You are the Delta Marines, the few, the proud, and you're here, you're the survivors, man. You, you, you made it, so welcome this morning. Uh, as Tom said earlier, what we're doing is what we normally do at the beginning of a year. Uh, we hit pause on just wherever we're at in any given sermon series, and we always touch on three, three topics or two topics in the past at the beginning of the year. Uh, Just so that we could say if if just for some reason as we're preaching through a book of the Bible uh, and the Bible in that particular book doesn't lead us to teach on these certain topics, we can at least say we have intentionally because of the value these topics hold, we're going to insert these rhythms into the life of our church. In the past it has been two: prayer, that is a necessary rhythm for us to always talk about, and then the sanctity of life. Um, And so, what I wanted to do this year as I was just having the break over Christmas, thinking and praying, was uh, coming to this conclusion, which seems to be the story of my life, uh, which is this phrase, a day late and a dollar short. It landed on me this idea, like, why have we not also concentrated on the topic of devotion to the Word of God? Because just as important it is to be people who are Hosanna people praying saying Lord I can't you can't help me and as equally important as it is to talk about things such as the sanctity of life and we're going to do that next week is to talk about our need to be devoted to the word one of the ways we describe disciples here at Delta Church is this is that in the gospel you are a follower The gospel makes you a follower. And the specific way we define being a follower of Jesus is this. It's someone who devotes themselves to prayer and the word. And so going forward from here, what we're going to do is insert into this beginning of the year rhythm of prayer, word, And now, sanctity of life. And so that's why we're going to be starting today with a sermon on devoting yourself to the Word. So if we were to ask this question and just begin to unpack the genesis of this idea, why a sermon on devoting yourself to the Word, how did God just bring me to this place and press this on you? What I want to do is just sort of cast this vision for you because it's going to set us up for the realities that King David is going to unpack for us in Psalm 19. So over the break, I've been reading a book, a book called The Bedford Boys. One of my hobbies is World War II history. I just love reading about World War II history, and this particular book called The Bedford Boys is about a group of men from a particular company, Company A. They are part of the 116th Infantry Regiment, 29th Infantry Division, and if you know anything about World War II, the 29th Infantry Division was one of the major infantry divisions that was devoted to storming the beaches of Normandy. And not just any of the beaches in Normandy. Many of the companies in the 29th Division were on Omaha Beach. There were multiple beaches that the troops landed on that day. Historians look back and say out of the five beaches, if I remember right, the worst beach to land on on that day was Omaha Beach. But there was a particular sector of Omaha Beach that was like the worst of the worst. They called it the D1 sector. And there was one company that was tasked with taking the D1 sector of Omaha Beach on D-Day. And that was Company A made up of men from Bedford, Virginia. Uh, the story, to make a long story short, is this. That entire company that got wiped out. They went and stormed the beaches that day, decimated. Trained for years, weaponized, knew what was coming. They knew the warfare that was ahead of them. And literally, like only a handful of people survived from that company In particular, the city of Bedford, Virginia lost 22 men that day. And what was unique about Bedford, Virginia is back in that day, that 29th Infantry Division was made up of a lot of National Guard units. And the way that worked was the units were stationed in cities like Bedford, Virginia, and it was made up of people just from that city. And so a lot of the infantrymen in Bedford were cousins, uncles, fathers and sons, stormed the beach that day, 22 men from Bedford were killed and only a handful of survived. And the only reason why they survived is because their boat sunk before it made it to the beach and they didn't actually go. Historians would say if they landed on the beach that day, they too would have been decimated. And so here I am reading this book. I recommend the book for you. Short, maybe about 200 200- Toner pages, phenomenal story about the sacrifice of these men. But so I'm reading the book over winter break. Uh, I finished the book, and here's, here's where my, my mind goes. My mind begins to drift to another place where we learn about warfare, specifically in the Bible, and that's Ephesians chapter 6. If you go and you remember in Ephesians chapter 6, what the apostle paul talks about is the warfare that the christian finds themselves in day in and day out and you go into verse 11 of chapter 6 paul says you guys need to know so he's just laid out the glories of grace he's laid out the implications of this grace And then he lands the plane of his letter to the Ephesians by saying this. Guys, you need to put on the whole armor of God so that you can withstand the schemes of the devil. You need to know this. As a Christian, as a recipient of grace, as you're going to walk yourselves through this life, there's two things you've got to realize. Satan is hell-bent against destroying you. The schemes of the devil are ever-present. His main aim is to make sure you do not thrive as a believer. But the good news of God is He has not left you unequipped. He has equipped you with the armor of God. And that's the famous armor of God passage of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 6. And if you notice and you start reading through the armor, there's multiple pieces of armor that he begins to identify. He says, take up the whole armor of God so that you can withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on, notice this, the belt of truth. That's a sort of the defensive kind of weapon. So that's the way you can... Uh, keep your clothes tight to you to be able to hang weapons on and those sorts of things. So you have the belt of truth. You have the breastplate of righteousness, the the chest armor for yourself. That's defensive. You've got shoes for your feet. It's the gospel of peace so that you can dig in and be able to wage warfare when you go into battle. Shoes are a type of defensive weapon. You've got the shield of faith. That's a defensive weapon. You have the helmet of salvation. That's a defensive weapon. And then he gets to the last Piece of armor that the Christian has, down there in verse 17, he says, Take the sword of the Spirit. Defensive armor, defensive armor, defensive armor, defensive armor, defensive armor, defensive armor, armor, one piece of offensive ar- armor. And he says, It's the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit in you has a weapon. And it's the only offensive weapon you have for fighting the schemes of the enemy. And the question is, what is the sword of the Spirit? And the Apostle Paul says very clearly that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And so if you piece all these things together, and I'm just thinking about these things... The way we fight the schemes of the devil in our lives, who is hell-bent on making sure we do not mature as followers of Jesus, is for the spirit within you, Ephesians chapter 1, believers before the foundation of the world, what Brady was talking about last week, have been signed and sealed with the Holy Spirit, Paul says that Holy Spirit in you uses one thing and one thing alone to fight Satan and his schemes, and that is the Word of God. And so I'm just thinking on these things, but I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking about the warfare, and then God just takes my mind to Ephesians chapter 6 and just begins to press these things on me, and here's the thought that God was pressing on to me, that there are some of us caught on the spiritual beaches of life, Each morning we wake up and it's as though we're storming the spiritual Omaha beach of parenting. And we're storming the spiritual Omaha beach of marriage, singleness. We find ourselves waging warfare on the beachhead against lust, against pornography, against anger, against bitterness, against depression against our lack of self-control, and in our fight against the schemes of the enemy, we are being decimated by the enemy because we're not weaponized with the Word of God. Now, most likely as a follower of Jesus here this morning, you, and you recognize these things in this area of your life, you, you most likely hate the fact that you're being decimated by the schemes of the enemy. In your life, you hate that the enemy has gained a foothold in any of these areas. And as each day, as you wade onto the shores of your spiritual Omaha Beach, whichever that might be for you, you recognize one thing. In this fight, my soul needs reviving. In this fight, I need wisdom that enlightens the path forward and restores joy to my heart because right now, I feel helpless. Right now, as I'm in this battle, I feel hopeless. Right now, in this battle, I do not know what to do. And the good news is that God knows that you're in this place. The good news is that God cares that you are feeling this way, helpless, hopeless, unsure of what to do. And the good news is that God has answers for every one of these areas in His Word. But for whatever reasons we may have each day as we wade ashore these spiritual beaches, we just so often do so minus the weapon of the Word of God. And so this is my reasoning for a sermon on devoting ourselves to the Word of God. As I was just reflecting on my year, 2018, reflecting on my year that I desired to have as it pertains to the Word of God for 2019, God taking my mind through the door of that book for this people, that's part of the reason why I asked you guys to fill out that little survey on the Word of God and just its interaction in your life it is to just get a sense of where we are as a people. And about half of us are in that place where you were very honest and just said, yeah, I struggle with these things. I struggle with having a desire for the Word of God. I struggle with weaponizing myself, finding joy in these things. And so I think God was prompting me to take us to this place where it's like we just need to put into the regular rhythm of the life of God's people this local embodiment of the kingdom of Christ called Delta Church so that we, we can encourage and exhort one another to this good work of devoting ourselves to the word. And so where else best to start than one of the most classic of classic places in the Bible on the word of God, Psalm 19. And so what I want to do is just pray for us this morning, that as the Word of God is taught, that the Word of God would sink deep in our hearts, and as we'll see here in a little bit, that God would begin to do in our hearts what we are incapable of doing for ourselves, which is inclining our hearts to even want to desire the word of God. So let's pray for that, then we'll get started, okay? God help, we are desperately in need of you. We need you to speak this morning through your word. Father, my mind just drifts to uh, Samuel and his calling to be the prophet of God, and eventually Eli said, listen, the next time God calls, you need to go back to him and say, speak, Lord, For your servant is listening. Lord, please speak. Because this morning, we, your servants are coming before you and saying our desire is to do your will in parenting, do your will in marriage, do your will in the fight against sin and our emotions and our thoughts and our actions. We want our lives to be aligned and in sync, declaring your glory in everything we think, say, and do. And we need you, Lord, to speak. So please speak. Your servants are listening. Holy Spirit, come and empower for your name's sake. Set me aside. Immerse us, Spirit. Drench us. Cause our hearts to burn within us so that when we get done, we could say the Lord Jesus Christ met with us this morning through His Word. God, help us. It's for your name I pray. Amen. So here's the main idea for this morning. Okay, should be up on the screen here. It's this The perfect word of God realigns our wandering hearts to God. The perfect word of God realigns our wandering hearts back to God. And so apparently, you guys have given me too much time away from preaching because the sermon this morning is just pure Southern Baptist perfection. Guys, it's three points that all begin with the letter P. I apologize. All right? So we're just going to go PPP at three points all the way through Psalm 19, okay? The first point is this. It's the purpose of creation. So King David is going to start off by lifting our eyes to the heavens, okay? And he's going to talk about God's design for creation, God's purpose of creation, because what we're going to see here in a moment is this. God speaks to us through the things he has made. See, King David is the author of this psalm, and in a masterpiece of poetry, he takes up the subject of God's perfect Word, but before he turns to God's perfect Word, he's first going to lift our eyes to the heavens in order to behold the creation of God. And we see this starting in verse 1, where David tells us that God makes Himself known through His creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, he says, The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You see, God's created order has a purpose. Nature was designed by God to reveal truth about God. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he understands this when he says this concerning creation. He writes that for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And so the question is, Paul, how has God shown himself plainly? The them there is everybody on the face of the earth. Paul's answer is this. Well, here's how God has made Himself known plainly and God has shown Himself to them. For His invisible attributes, namely God's eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And because this is true, Paul makes the point that people have no excuse for not knowing God. And in Psalm 19, King David wholeheartedly agrees. Creation is speaking continually. It is declaring. It is proclaiming. It is persistent. The glory of God is constantly on the lips of the creation of God. It never stops. It repeatedly is pouring out speech, says David. It is revealing knowledge about the creator day in and day out, night in and night out, over and over and over and over and over. over. All of creation is saying, God has made me. There is a creator. I did not happen by happenstance. You can behold me and learn true things about the one who made me. Now, David recognizes there's no audible words. He's saying, in a sense, that the creation is speaking. It's got a voice. It's using words. But he recognizes that there's no audible words. Creation, in a sense, is a speaking with this nonverbal communication. Yet, despite the lack of audible words, David says, they still have a voice. And that voice extends through all the earth, words which spread out to the end of the world. Ultimately, the picture is this God's creation is doing what it was designed to do, it is joyfully. Living out its purpose of glorifying God. So, if we were to ask the question, God, what is your purpose for your creation? The Father would say this the purpose of my creation is to do one thing, exist to declare the glory of God. And King David says creation is doing that. It is living out the purpose of what it was created to do. You see, God is the sovereign conductor. And creation keeps in step with his rhythm. To quote Charles Spurgeon: every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move in atom more or less than God wishes. The chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. And every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. In other words, in this universe, there is no such thing as a rogue molecule. All the universe bends beneath the will of Creator God. And what's beautiful is that as creation dances to the sovereign beat of the Creator, it's all for the glory of His name. And for proof, says David, all you've got to do is look at the sun. All you've got to do is look at the sun. If you've ever seen an amazing sunrise crest the horizon or the skies splashed with color maybe by a late summer sunset, any of us ever just seen a sunset where you're like, dang, like that's gorgeous? Anyone ever been there before? Non-rhetorical question right now. Raising of hands, yes, a few people, okay. Like you look at that and you're like, that blows my mind. King David is like, ah, yeah, I told you told you so like that's the point we're meant to look at the sun at least and recognize that the sun is doing what it was created to do to stand in the heavens and declare the glory of god david goes on further describing it as the bridegroom who leaves his chamber, or the strength of a strong man who runs his race. So the sun, with its vivid colors and majestic strength, declares the glory of God day after day as its radiant beams expose everything, leaving nothing hidden from its heat. And then notice, he transitions into a way that is totally unexpected. So here he is, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, creation, 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 and all of a sudden he's like, and God's word. And you're like, what's that about, right? I mean, as he continues his psalm, he makes this hard shift that is totally out of the blue, at least it seems out of the blue, does it not? So that you're reading here going like, the dude is like standing on the palace there in Jerusalem going, man, that sunset's incredible, wow, the Bible's great, and you're like, how in the world does he go from that to that? But notice what he's doing is he's just making the simple shift from that which is external to that which is internal. He's making the shift from that which exposes the things of the external man, as I heard one man say before, to the things that expose the internal man, that which consists of the heart. He moves from the wordless speech of God's creation to the inward speech of his heart. So as his external observation of creation turns, to, turns him to reflect on his heart, what David discovers is this, man, my speech doesn't quite align with the speech of creation. Creation speaks declaring the glory of God, declaring the glory of God, declaring the glory of God. He's like, I look at my heart, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are this, not prone to declare the glory of God. I've got a huge problem. I've got a huge problem. My heart is misaligned. And that's what we see down there in verses 12 through 14, the problem of our wandering hearts. You can just look at verse 12 there. Who can discern his errors, says David? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins let them not have dominion over me then i shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression let thee here it is words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight o lord my rock and my redeemer you see, verses 1 through 6 scream one thing. God's creation exists to glorify God, and nature is doing what it was designed to do. And like nature, humanity was created to declare the glory of God just as nature. But the Apostle Paul tells us this, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, or to do it all for the glory of God. If you go to some of the older documents of the faith, something such as the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a catechism is something that we're now beginning to teach to the little ones downstairs. It's a question and answer system that is just meant to teach us the truths of God. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this What is the chief end of man? What is the supreme end? What is his primary aim? What is the goal of your life? Answer the chief, supreme, primary aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, the sum total of your existence, the sum total of my existence is to leverage the way we think, to leverage the way we feel, to leverage the way we choose all for the glory of God. But the problem of our wandering hearts is that they're so often prone not to do that, not to do that not to function as they were designed to do. And so David recognizes something true about himself that is also true of all of us. We have fragmented hearts, misaligned hearts that are functioning out of step that need to be realigned back to the place where they're doing what they were created to do in any sphere of life, namely giving glory back to God. You see, David, I think when he's saying those things down there in 12, 13, and 14, and he's examining himself, he's saying this, man, I've got errors that I'm just totally capable of justifying. Like, I just can't discern my errors. There's just times like I'm totally willing to justify things in my marriage. Have you ever been in this place in your marriage? Where, like, you're the one at fault, and you blame it on your spouse? Well, if you would just do the dishes like I told you to, I wouldn't have to get angry and yell at you, right? You fix yourself, then then my problem would be fixed. That's an error you're not able to discern in that moment because the not dishwashing, all that's doing is exposing you have a heart of anger in that moment. And whether it's in our parenting or our battles and fights for sin or whatever, the tendency of the heart is to justify errors, not discern errors, David says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. David, why are you asking God to declare you to be innocent from hidden faults? Because I have hidden faults. There's areas, corners of my heart that need to be exposed to the penetrating light of some power that will realign me and bring me back into the place where I'm functioning, firing on all cylinders, declaring glory to God. Verse 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Sort of an old school word, presumptuous. It just means bold, brazen. You're like, I know this is wrong, and I'm doing it. I know God said don't, I don't care. I know God said do, I just don't want to. And so maybe it comes down to the ways we think, the ways we speak, the ways we act, the ways we feel and we choose And so what we do is we don't guard our hearts because that movie we want to see, yeah, I know it's got a graphic sex scene in it, but what's a couple of minutes? It's 120 minutes, two minutes of the graphic sex scene. I mean, is that really that big of a deal? But God says we are to guard what goes into our eyes because what we view affects our heart. or you're at home and you're being a smarty mouth with your with your spouse and the words of your mouth are hurting others and you go, "You know what? What's well, a few words?" Just a few words. Got a little lust here, a little lack of self-control there, just a just a small bit of boastful self-promotion. Just just a little bit of anger with my kids. Is it really that big of a deal? Eh, whatever. You see, whether it's hidden faults, whether it's just outright, presumptuous, bold, brazen sin, it can be easy for a sin to sneak in, lull us to sleep in a certain area, and the next thing you know, that sin has dominion over us in that particular area. It's the crazy old school illustration of, like if you want to boil a frog, right, you don't boil the water and throw them in, that thing's going to hop right out of there. Do you know how you boil a frog? You stick them in lukewarm water, then you turn on the heat, and it just slowly rises and rises, and he's just sitting there acclimating and acclimating to it, and the next thing you know, the thing's toast. And so sin can just sneak up on us and have dominion over us. So do you see what David is doing? David is standing there, and again, I don't know where he was standing. Maybe this is back in his shepherd days. I like to think of it like King David's there. I mean, the king is in Jerusalem. He's on the palace. He's on the terrace. The sun is setting in the Palestinian sky, and he's just standing there going, that sunset's incredible. Just, Just look at how that sunset declares the glory of God. It's almost like that sunset is saying, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Just look how that sunset exposes everything. Nothing is hidden beneath the radiant beams of its searching heat. And then he has that Holy Spirit moment where he's like, "Ooh, snap. You ever have that Holy Spirit moment where you're like, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's like, Bro. And you're like, okay, like he just turned that back in on me. (laughs) And I think King David is having a Holy Spirit moment where he's like, man, my heart, there's things that are hidden in there. And I need something like the radiant power of the searching beams of the sun that exposes everything and leaves nothing hidden. It penetrates darkness. I need something to penetrate darkness the hidden faults of my heart. I need something to expose me and my presumptuous sins. I need something that can discern my errors. I need something. And praise be to God, David turns us to this something which has the power to expose and realign our wandering hearts back to God, and it's this. It's the power of God's perfect word. It's the power of God's perfect Word. Isn't it great? I mean, this thought's just sort of hitting me here as we look at verses 7 through 11. God's answers are so simple, are they not? See, for some of us here this morning, to to go back to the Bedford Boys illustration, we find ourselves on the spiritual beachhead of parenting, let's say. Like, we just feel helpless, we just feel hopeless, we just feel like we have no clue what we're doing. Our kids are unruly. They're not acting the way they, we want them to act and all these sorts of things. And it's not like God gives you a one hoops to have to jump through. He's like, it's simple. If you want your soul revived in your parenting, he's like, it's found here in, in the Word. Do you want your soul to rejoice? Do you want your eyes Enlightened, so you know the wise path forward are you struggling in your singleness are you struggling in your marriage are you struggling with your emotions are you struggling in your fight for the purity of your mind God doesn't say go and do and go and do and do these things, then add 10 more and subtract 3 and multiply by 12, and then, you know, m- take that to the 10th power. He doesn't do it. He's, he's like, guys, it's, it's funneled and focused down into this area. The power for you to have your heart realigned into whatever area of life that is just decimating you is to weaponize yourself with the word of God. Because as Paul said, Ephesians 6, it's the spirit within you then as you continue to ingest this word of God into you. It's like what you're doing is like you're storing up spears and you're storing up swords and you're storing up machine guns and you're storing up... These are spiritual spears, by the way. Spiritual swords spiritual grenades, spiritual atom bombs, and all these things, so that when the scheme of the enemy comes and lands on your doorstep, the Holy Spirit goes in and you go, Oh, man, I see you stocked the armory quite well. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. He reaches in there, according to Paul, and he wields the sword of the Spirit against the schemes of the enemy. But for some of us, the armor, the armory is just a bit dry. And so it's the power of God's perfect word that we need. And so he rolls into what I would argue are some of the most famous verses in all the Bible, giving us one of the most majestic descriptions of God's word. Just listen to how he describes the word of God. Just listen. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. It's so easy to go, yeah, yeah, perfect, reviving, testimony, blah, 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 and you just blow through it. Listen. Listen. The law of the Lord is perfect. It will revive your soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It will make you wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. It will rejoice your heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It will enlighten your eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You see, as David turns to the power of God's perfect word, what you get is an absolute sense of worship from King David. His kindness, in his kindness, the Lord God has provided the necessary tool that has the power to discern our errors, the necessary tool that can expose our hidden faults, the necessary tool that keeps us from presumptuous sins, the necessary tool that revives the soul, the necessary tool that enlightens the path, the necessary tool that rejoices the heart, the necessary tool that makes us wise. And oozing out of this text this the sense that King David is just living in a place of pure and absolute, satisfied delight in the truths and realities and the effects And the promises that the word of God brings to him and brings to anyone who reads it. So look at what he says. He says, listen, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. David's telling us that God's word is complete. It's perfect. It lacks nothing. It's all sufficient, meaning that it is not deficient in any way. Therefore, God's perfect word imparts life because no matter what our sins may have been or our problems are, the Bible is able to turn us from our sins and lead us through our problems and restore the soul. That's the sufficiency of the word of God. David tells us that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This means that God's word is solid, it's sure, it's firm, it's trustworthy. You can stand on this thing. You can jump. It won't give. It won't crack. It won't fail. It won't falter. It is trustworthy. And since it is a reliable testimony of the Lord, it can be trusted because God is the God who does not lie. And if the God who is God who cannot lie says, here is what you need to know about this thing, King David says, this is the foundation upon which I'm going to build my life. And this is the foundation for my godliness. From singleness to marriage, David says, have you considered the testimony of the Lord? It's sure, making wise that simple. In your parenting to your work and everything in between, God's word is the bedwalk for your discerning. David says the precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. In other words, Scripture is precise. That's what it means to be right. It's not the sense that it's right because it might be wrong. It's true, it's straight, it's precise, and it will steer you in the right direction. And to be steered by the Creator who has God in store for His creation is a note of joy. Have you ever been reading your Bible and you're like, whoo! I mean, that was like a razor's edge fine. I mean, that thing was like precise. Like that thing just cut me and laid me open right there. King David says that's what the Word of God does. We also see that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes of God's commands there's nothing that stains it it's pure and in its radiant purity it becomes like the sun penetrating our darkened hearts and making our path clear it gives us insight for how to live in a way that brings glory to God and then in a burst of praise King David says not only does the word of God have these beautiful promises and effects for those who read it and consume it and eat it and devote themselves to it but he says just look at what scripture is in itself It is clean, enduring forever. It is true and righteous altogether. It is more to be desired than gold. It is sweeter than honey. That is, God's Word is the source of all true delight. Every part is of the highest value, more valuable than all earthly wealth. What good does it for a man to gain all the wealth in the world but lose his soul? David's like, it is worthy of being a pauper here on earth if you are storing away the infinite treasure of God's Word. It is valuable. It's precious. Something to be feasted upon because it's more satisfying than the sweetest of all food. Moreover, God and His Word warns us of danger It clearly reveals the pitfalls of sin. It exposes the schemes of the enemy. And it reveals to us the hazards of disobeying God. But notice that last little phrase there in verse 11. Look at what your Bible says there. In keeping them, there is great reward. The word them there is talking about the word of God. The law of God. The testimony, the commands, the rules, the precepts. All synonyms for the same reality. This thing right here. And keeping them. And eating this. And delighting in this. And chewing on this. And meditating on this. And memorizing this. And knowing this. King David says there is great reward. I love that phrase. great reward. You see when you get into this book. This book will get into you. It will begin to conform you to the image of Jesus, Romans chapter 8. Becoming to you the word of life that it is, Philippians chapter 2. It will equip you to battle sin, again Romans chapter 8. Fight the fight of faith and mature you into the full measure of Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. It will call you to behold the glory of Christ, John chapter 1 so that as you behold His glory from the Word, you will be transformed into His image, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It'll make you wise for salvation through faith faith in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then equip you for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1. All this and many more is wrapped up in that idea of King David going great reward, great reward, great reward for those who consume and eat and chew and meditate and think and do whatever they can do to stock the armory of their hearts with the word of God. Now, for the most part, all of us know these things, do we not? We know these things. A study I was thinking this past week, I mean that's the explanation of the text, is to go, how do I round the corner here? How to round the corner here? Because I've heard it preached, and I'm sure you've heard it before, is some guy gets up and says all these things like me is like, now you guys, you fools for not reading it more, you're stupid, get your act together, get out there and read it more, get a Bible plan and get up early in the morning and start doing and start doing and start doing and start doing. And it's coming from this legalistic bent of like this and get your act together, just do something, why don't you? I guess I could have done that, right? But what I want to do is come at it from this way at the level of the heart. To come at it from the level of the heart. Because my guess, as I just said, is we all know these things. John, I just heard you say there's great reward in keeping the Bible. I know. John, I just heard you say that God's word warns us against sin. I know. We know the word of God revives our souls. We know it makes us who are simple Wise. We know that it rejoices our hearts. We know that it enlightens the eyes. But the question right now I want you to consider is this. What do you do when you know these things and yet still you struggle with your desire for God's word? Saints, what do you do? What do you do? You can either be like this, well, I just don't have a desire for it, boom, out the door it goes, and we storm the beach day after day, day after day, not weaponized by the word of God. That is one way of doing life. But I would suggest that the scriptures tell us there's a better way forward. Think of this question. How can we fight the schemes of the devil who wants nothing more than for you and me to believe that we can somehow grow in our walk with God apart from knowing the Word of God? How do we fight the schemes of the devil who wants us to believe that we can somehow enter the daily spiritual battle of parenting, the daily spiritual battle of marriage, singleness, lust, porn, anger, bitterness, lack of self-control, whatever it might be, minus the weapon of our warfare and somehow walk away unscathed each day. How do we fight that scheme? How do you do it? How do you do it? Guys, God's answers are so simple. It goes right back to what this man was preaching on yesterday. The answer is found in prayer. You can go to another, I call them the great 19s. It's Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Both of them talk about the grandeur and the good of the word of God for the believer. And when you go to Psalm 119, verse 36, listen to what the psalmist says. Listen, look at me. He says, incline my heart to your testimony and not to selfish gain. Do you know what the beauty of that little verse is right there, Psalm 119, verse 36? six. Second Peter tells us that it's the Holy Spirit who carried men along to write the scriptures. So you have the Holy Spirit carrying along a psalmist who's writing down words according to the Holy Spirit, and the confession of the psalmist's heart is this. I know the inclination of my heart, and at times it is not for the Word of God. It is for things that bring me gain. My argument here is when he says incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Do you know what a simple definition of selfish gain is this? Doing what feels good in the moment. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. If I, if I perceive I'm going to get gain from this thing, if myself is going to gain, if myself is going to advance, if myself is going to get that raise, if myself if myself, myself, if I perceive that gain is going to come my way, if I feel this way, then I'm going to do this thing. But what happens so often with the Word of God when we're called to devote ourselves to it? We look at the Bible and go, "Ah, I don't see the gain. I don't see the gain. My heart is inclined. The path of least resistance is for my heart to do what feels good in the moment. The path of least resistance is for me to go, I will only put forth effort towards those things that I perceive will be gained to me. And the psalmist says, so often I look at this thing and go, no gain, no gain, no gain, no gain. And so here's the psalmist before God saying, I need you to incline my heart not to selfish gain, but to your word. Because I don't even have the desire for your word. Like I'm not even talking about the psalmist says. Like I'm not even talking about reading the word. Like I'm over here like on square one, and I'm not even on square one because I'm saying I got to get to square one, and where square one is like I just have a desire for reading the word of God. So he's not saying God help me read the word. He's not saying help me start. What he's over here is like out in the parking lot going, dang! Like I need my heart to be even inclined to even want to do this thing. And I love that God says that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to be in that place. It's okay to be in that place. We can even pray for God to give us a heart to desire his word. And then what you do is you begin to pray for God to give you a heart to even have a desire so that the desire then leads us into the Word of God, is you then pray and you step back and you rest in the fact that your right standing with God is not grounded in how much time you spent in the Word of God. Your right standing with God is grounded in him who is the word. Do you see the difference there? We're soon going to be getting into the book of Galatians, guys. And one of the words you're going to see a lot in the book of Galatians is this word justification. Justification, fancy word, means this, right standing with God. And the heartbeat of the book of Galatians is this, my right standing with God is by grace, through faith in Christ. The problem is that for a lot of us, we spin out of control because we go, agree, Paul, my right standing with God is, by grace, through faith, and if I'm honest, I sort of add in a little bit of me reading the Word and praying a lot. Because when I read the Word, I sort of feel good. But then what happens is when you don't read the Word, You don't feel good, and you begin to spin out of control. See, that's adding something to the gospel. Paul is going to charge at that very hard because his confession is that your right standing with God is not by grace through faith and all these things of sanctification. Your right standing with God, period, is by grace through faith alone, full stop. So that if you wake up tomorrow morning, you're like, I just don't have a desire for God's word right now. God is up there not going. I knew it, man. I love you a little bit less. He says, no, I love you fully because the grounds of your right standing with me is in him who is the word. The word. So that's why you can go to somewhere like John chapter one. In the beginning was The word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Man, that's pretty cool. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, the Word who is glorious, full of grace and truth for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace so when you get up tomorrow morning and you're like ah wandering hard why don't you want this thing the answer of the gospel is don't try harder the answer of the gospel is stand on the foundation Of him who is the word. That is your right standing before God. And then on that foundation of Christ and Christ alone, you begin to say, God, incline my heart. And you begin to walk forward as a doer of the word. Not rooted in how well you do those things, but rooted in him who's done everything well. The word. Full of grace. Full of truth. Because when you fail tomorrow and you're going to fail tomorrow, guess what you have in Christ? grace, and truth. Have you received the grace of Jesus? Have you received the grace of Jesus? If not, it is abundant and free, and you can repent and believe today and know the saving grace of Him who is the Word. My guess is the majority of us here this morning would say, yes, I've received the grace of Christ and you know what he has for you in addition to saving grace? Growing grace. Forgiving grace. Sanctifying grace. Because he is the truth. Full of grace. Grace upon grace, the Apostle John continues to say. Brothers and sisters, as we fight together for the glory of God in our lives, I just can't say this enough. It is absolutely crucial that we be not just hearers of the word, but that we be doers of the word. Saints, saved by grace, devoted to the word of God. Saints, saved by grace, devoted to the Word of God. Because then as we begin to march forward in our life together, we're not marching forward on the foundation of works and how good we're doing these things, but we're marching forward through 2019 as those who are standing on the foundation of Christ. Him who is grace and truth, who has shown us grace upon grace, and then we begin to go forward through life, listen to this phrase, with grace-driven grace effort, fighting, encouraging one another to be devoted to the Word. Let's pray. God, help us in these things. We need you pretty badly. Father, for those of us who just need to have that sort of shock and awakening, God, I just pray that the conviction of the Spirit, just we would not uh, quench that uh, for those of us, Father, who have sensitive souls and we might just be spinning out right now uh, because it's like, oh man, like I should be and I could be and I, I want to be and I'm not consistent. These we're starting to spin out. God, I pray that you would crush the spin out right now. And what you would do is realign and reorient those sensitive sensitive souls to the reality of the foundational bedrock of saved by grace through faith in Him who is the Word. And if we can say, I have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, He is my only hope of salvation, God, would that reality bury peace upon the sensitive soul? Would you lift their weary head so that as they look you in the eyes that they would hear you say this, You are mine, Saved by grace, now let's go forward with grace-driven effort in this area. God, help us in these things. It's in your name I pray. Amen.